Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the first episode in our new series linked to our apocalypse issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be talking about Pete's lead editorial, Hoping for Doomsday. And then we'll be welcoming Ivan Rusin, President of the Ukrainian Evangelical Theological Seminary, who will be speaking to us from his home in Bucha, outside Kiev. So, Pete... Let's talk about your editorial, uh, which is entitled Hoping for Doomsday. Do you want to kind of give a, what were you thinking about when you uh, chose that title and what were your kind of key points there? Well, I was thinking a lot about Apocalypse, which is the theme of the issue and also of this series of podcasts. Um, When I first started going around pitching the idea of Apocalypse to people, I got two sets of reactions. I don't know what yours were, but I got one set of just sort of a blank um, horror, like, are you guys going into some weird doomsday um, prediction scenario type of thing in Plow? And another set of people saying, wow, that's absolutely how I feel. Um, That would then split into two kind of sets of people. Your more uh, progressive sets of people might be worrying about climate change. Uh, More conservative people might be worried about breakdown in uh, faith Communities, family, uh, marriage, social norms, deaths of despair. Uh, And then in the midst of it all, as we were putting this issue together, uh, Russia invaded the Ukraine, that horrible war uh, began. And suddenly, questions of nuclear apocalypse started feeling urgent again, as they hadn't probably for decades. And so those are some of the things that um, we thought about in putting this whole issue together that we thought about in putting this series of podcasts together and that we're going to explore. But then also I tried to encapsulate uh, here in this editorial, uh, which is about the promise of apocalypse. Right. And that's actually what I I was really interested in, because one of the things that you sort of talk about is the, essentially the worldview, the, the basic materialist worldview. Eventually, A, we eventually all die, obviously. B, Eventually, there is the heat death of the universe. And um, that's kind of a, that is something that we might think of as an apocalypse, but the Christian apocalypse is kind of significantly different in that it actually, it is one of the things that it refers to um, is the end of a world. But rather than kind of creating meaninglessness, the way that um, you sort of looking at the heat death of the universe might do, it kind of almost back projects meaning onto a lot of um, many endings that we, that we otherwise might experience as the end of hope. So, you know, you talk about the little apocalypses, the little ends of worlds that are our own deaths. And one of the things that the Christian apocalypse does is, you know, it's not actually, it's something more like a beginning. It's, it's, it means technically unveiling and what it unveils is who we really are and what the world really is. And that kind of retroactively um, gives meaning to a lot of things or, or reveals meaning to a lot of kinds of suffering, including the suffering that we undergo when loved ones die or you know, when we're afraid of our own deaths um, that might other, not otherwise have had meaning. Exactly. And that's the way in which the microcosm of our own lives and sort of that, you know, ancient human question that we can only assume goes back tens or hundreds of thousands of years of, you know, there must, 
you know, a human life, a person I love's life must mean more than just disintegration when he or she dies, right? Uh, combined with just looking out, you know, on our world and on humanity in general, the history of, of humankind and thinking, you know, there must be more to this story, right? So apocalypse, the idea of apocalypse actually develops in the early uh, Middle East, probably, you know, a few hundred years before Christ, um, possibly simultaneously in Judaism and in Zoroastrianism. Um, there may be other traces. We have a beautiful piece in Eshuid that actually talks about how apocalyptic ideas really took hold under the Seleucid Empire, which was the first empire to use uh, numerical chronology. So years would sort of go on in numerical progression. Shira Telushkin in her piece on Vasily Kandinsky uh, looks into that and just how the idea of naming years not by uh, who was ruling or something like that, but rather just giving them a number so that they progressed kind of invites us uh, to think, well, where does that progression end? Right. And so the people who are asking those questions are, of course, not the people who want the current regime or dynasty to continue forever, but the ones who are kind of counting the years till when that oppressive Seleucid emperor, uh, you know, goes away and lets us live freely again. So Apocalypse has always been uh, from its inception about a kind of freedom and a uh, making sense of things that don't make sense on their surface, right? And that's what I try to get into a little bit. I think probably before we get more into that, though, Suzanne, it would be worth clearing a few um, confusions away about Apocalypse. Okay. What we're not talking about, I mean, the first one is, you know, the, the ideas of apocalypse that motivated strange apocalyptic cults and sects to commit either uh, mass murder or mass suicide or uh, plant bombs, right? There's everything from uh, the Branch Dravidians to Am Shinriko in Japan. Uh, and you can go back through history and find people who were kind of possessed of an idea that the world is ending and that therefore allows me to do anything. Of course, you don't just see that in Christianity. There is a form of that in the Islamic State going on with the suicide bombers. Uh, and another one is that Christianity itself, in my view at least, has often gotten the idea of apocalypse wrong, especially modern Western Christianity, which has bought into this kind of enlightenment idea of the end of the world, meaning space-time universe, calls it quits, right? Um, which many scholars, not all, but uh, of course, N.T. Wright is one name that comes to mind as somebody who argues that that's never what uh, second, century, uh, second Temple Judaism or the early Christians meant when they talked about apocalypse, the unveiling or the coming of the day of the Lord. Um, and so uh, there's actually a much deeper vision of renewal and transformation and new creation um, that we need to be thinking about um, in terms of those last days. What I was interested in was getting to this early Christian, um, early Jewish idea of what the promise of those end times mean. What does it mean when God unveils his plans for humanity, 
Um, and then what does that mean just personally for people who are in despair, feeling like it's not worth uh, getting up in the morning, um, that it's kind of not worth founding a family, uh, that you know the death of a loved one is meaningless, or even that the extinction of humankind would just be some random and meaningless event that's gonna happen someday, and there it is, right? Both of us were kind of taken by this one blog post by um, this guy we both follow, Freddie DeBoer, yep. on the most personal form of apocalypse. Uh, I think you even pointed it out to me, Susanna. So, hat tip to you. So, Freddie DeBoer, who's an, an atheist, as far as I know, um, and a materialist, kind of describes what uh, the basic worldview or implications of the basic materialist worldview is. We're born in terror, he says. We exist for no reason. We experience confusion and shame as children. We busily prepare ourselves for lives we don't want or can't have. We are forced to take on the burdens of adult responsibility. We compromise relentlessly on what life will pursue. We settle and settle and settle. We fear death and ponder our meaninglessness. We experience the horrors of aging. And when we die, the only comfort we have is that we aren't conscious to learn that there was never any heaven or God to give it all meaning. So that's, that's, that's right there. That is the uh, question which I think Apocalypse answers, or that is the challenge which I think Apocalypse takes up um, properly understood. It's a great post, even though I ob obviously completely disagree with it. And the weird thing is that, you know, we modern people often kind of flatter ourselves that this is, this bleak view of the meaningless of the universe is some kind of new insight that only we, with uh, the help of modern science and a secularized worldview, have been able to grasp. The odd thing is you open your Bible and you'll find that same sense of devastation and meaninglessness uh, in the face of human mortality um, right there. In the Psalms, of course, in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, and uh, that, is, that is precisely something that people have thought for a very long time. You know, the, I, I think from the first time that humans gathered around a corpse to, to bury it. Ecclesiastes, I've, I've found a kind of comforting um, book in a lot of ways because no matter what you actually believe it to be true about um, kind of the reality of what we can expect after death, the reality of where our meaning is, there are certainly moods that we get in. Um, there are sort of, it's it's a very human thing to get in that Freddie DeBoer mood. And Ecclesiastes is kind of that Freddie DeBoer mood maximalized in the middle of the Bible and then answered in, a, in its own way. Um, you know, Job is a certain kind of Freddie DeBoer mood, although, you know, again, answered but answered in a really unsatisfying way in certain ways. But apocalypse, you know, in the Christian vision is really something that in the face of that meaninglessness, you know, reveals what actually is there and reveals what was there the whole time. This is a, a common uh, trope, but one way to look at it is, um, you know, if we look at human history in our own lives, what we see is the bottom side of a tapestry with dangling threads that have been cut short. It looks ugly. It looks chaotic. It looks meaninglessness. It it looks meaningless. Um, apocalypse is kind of the flipping over of the tapestry. It's the unveiling of what of the pattern that was already there, 
it doesn't just mean the end of an age, although it does mean that. It also means the revelation of the meaning of the age that we've been living through and of our own lives. And of course, the most famous example of that and where the word actually comes from is the apocalypse, uh, the final book of the Bible, the Revelation of John, which uh, we'll get to in due course. But first, I'm a little curious if you share, as I do, Susanna, the, 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 the feeling that this end of the world um, kind of fear is more widely out there right now than it has been for a while. And, and this is cyclical, right? This is, again, not um, 2022 is this unique year where people are uniquely scared. Um, but there does seem to be just many, many signs um, of a kind of hopelessness, uh, of this meaninglessness that Freddie DeBoer and the psalmist and the writer of Ecclesiastes expressed, just being generalized out and actually playing a role in people's um, lives. One example that I mentioned already is climate change. Um, there was a study a couple years ago uh, where uh, they surveyed young uh, 16 to 25 year olds uh, in a bunch of countries around the world. Uh, uh, four out of five young people are fearful of the future with the climate. 59% were very worried or extremely worried. I mean, those are big numbers. And if what's been well publicized and there's even been, uh, you know, some coverage of this just in the last uh, few weeks in the New York Times by Ezra Klein and others, you know, uh, how does it impact childbearing? Uh, should I bring a child into the world in view of the kind of climate-threatened future um, he or she will have? Uh, is it even moral to bring a child into the world who's going to contribute to the killing off of the planet? Right. So there's that whole kind of eco-anxiety, um, which has actually become a diagnosable syndrome by psychiatrists and apparently is on the rise, unknown just a couple of decades ago, uh, you have, you know, extreme events, uh, such as a man who uh, burned himself to death outside the U.S. Supreme Court uh, earlier this year uh, as a protest of the court's threatened uh, action, which we have uh, to kind of strike down climate change regulations. So there's that whole set of things that I think climate change is kind of forcing people to reckon with the fact that the world that we see outside um, that we've been living with for the last 10,000 years, I guess, since the last ice age, um, is not here forever, right? Right. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, for many people, although you could say, well, didn't you know that already? Um, climate change has, has certainly focused our mind, and I guess possibly because maybe most people just think in terms of, uh, even if they're not parents, they think in terms of what of my potential child's generation or my pot potential grandchildren's generation. That's sort of our horizon, and climate change has kind of moved the inevitable end of the planet as we know it up into that kind of time frame that we care about. Right. It's hard for us to think in terms of really caring about um, more than 10,000 years in the future, unless we are really kind of doing the wrestling with 
you know, existential angst, which, you know, I can remember doing intensely just before I converted when I was 15 or so. Um, you can usually dodge that and you can usually kind of um, psychologically at least anchor your hope for the future in your grandchildren's generation or their children's um, or, you know, in the sense of if you don't have kids, like there's a civilization that you're contributing to that will mm -hmm. go on in the future. And there's a kind of vagueness to that that I think um, allows for hope. But I, I actually think that there's not something concrete, really, that's changed. I mean, obviously, we are aware of things like climate change. We are aware of, you know, other things that could um, get, sort of end the world as we know it. I mean, we've been aware since the 1950s that this thing called, you know, the atomic bomb could very quickly end the world as we know it. And with it, you know, whatever contributions to civilization, uh, biological or otherwise, uh, we may make in our lifetime might, you know, become very quickly irrelevant. But it sort of seems to me that there needs to be a kind of double vision that we have, two different kinds of hope that we have in order to live good human lives. And it's a weird, it's a weird thing because sometimes those two kinds of hope seem to be in conflict with each other. So for one thing, you know, you do sort of, you need to have a sense that the actual everyday actions, the decisions that you make are contributing to something that is a good human project that will, that will be bigger than you and that will continue um, in one way or another into the next generation and beyond. Um, if you, you know, the, the PD James novel that was made into a movie, children of men, um, whenever I sort of hear people complaining about other people's kids on airplanes, um, it always kind of makes me think about that novel because whether or not you have kids, the existence of kids in the world makes your life so much better than it otherwise would be. And I'm not even sure that people realize that like the existence of the next generation, the fact of babies is something that deeply charges your life with meaning, whether or not those babies are related to you. Um, and I, I don't think that there's really any way to be grateful enough to, um, for that. Um, at the same time, if all we're hoping for is human beings to get more and more powerful and more and more, you know, spread over, you know, increase their dominion over, um, the, the earth completely so that they completely control it and then spread to the stars. That's kind of a hopeless vision too, in a weird sort of way. Um, I mean, people who are huge fans of Star Trek might disagree with me, but I actually kind of think that like a world where the Federation has completely attained victory and there's no more like a sort of end of history, um, model of perpetual peace throughout the stars is kind of bleak because it's not actually, it feels like it's in the place of some kind of eternity, but it doesn't actually answer the need for eternity that we have. And in that case, it seems to me that like something like an apocalypse, something coming in to disrupt this kind of human perfection is that can actually be a source of hope. Just as it was for the people under the Seleucid empire, uh, right. Uh, who were living not in peace, but, uh, at least with some type of political orderliness, but they couldn't wait for that thing to be gone. Uh, and so they were counting the days, right? Any day now. Right. I do think though, you were saying earlier that in a way nothing has changed. And of course, in a way nothing has changed. Um, 
But there is a sense in which it's a lot harder, I think, for a lot of people. And this is one reason we did this issue is because many of our readers wrote into us or suggested this very topic to us. Um, it's much harder to imagine now uh, because of not only climate change, but also cultural changes, um, that the project that I'm devoting my life to, the civilization, the community I'm building, is something that I can actually pass on to the next generation in any type of meaningful way. Um, because if that next generation is going to really have no sense of connection to this intergenerational project, um, even the act of having kids becomes a bit meaningless. What are they going to do? Just uh, move to Brooklyn? Um, hey! <laughs> <laughs> but there is a sense of that, right? That, that you're not raising up the new generation of um, kids who are going to move your hometown, you know, further into the future, uh, th those same forces that create um, opioid ep addiction epidemics, um, rising rates of suicide, rising rates of mental illness, especially among the young, are also the things that chip away at the meaningfulness even of having a family um, yeah. or at the meaningfulness of contributing to a society of a civilization that more and more people don't really believe in, right? And uh, so I think that may also be playing into that apocalyptic mood where the type of thing that Freddie mentions in his blog post um, becomes more widespread as an actual mood, not just something that we know intellectually is out there, yeah, we're gonna die someday, but something that permeates into our present lives, into our way that we go about in the world. And that is precisely, I think, why Christianity has not only the idea, but also the teaching of apocalypse, right? That the tapestry that we were speaking about earlier does get flipped over. And I think that flipping over actually um, is something that gives meaning not just to not just to the supernatural dimension of human life, but to the natural dimension as well. It seems to me that we're, we're in a place where the natural project of human family and the natural project of human civilization has been called into question. I think that like the questioning of it is a kind of attack on a natural good. And I think that that natural good needs to be revived um, by a super, with, with a supernatural source. But it doesn't cease to be itself. It doesn't cease to be a natural good. Um, you know, when we hope for, you know, the new heavens and the new earth, we're we, like that hope actually allows me to get married. That hope actually allows me to, you know, allows us to publish a magazine. Um, the, the projects that we do that are part of natural goods that are part of making families and, you know, carrying on a civilization are actually, um, given energy by and given life by that supernatural good. And, you know, I think there's a reason for that. I think ultimately they're going to be caught up in it. Um, and it's just interesting to me that we are at a point where, you know, we're not able to depend on the kind of sort of vagueness or um, basic, you know, assumption of that natural good anymore. Um, even to have the natural good, we need the supernatural good. So, uh, of course, there's a whole host of people who would say, this is just, you know, wish projection, right? 
the desire for the meaning meaningfulness of life uh, is that leads to the belief in apocalypse that ultimately believes in the uh, belief in resurrection, that death is not the end, that there will be a new heaven and new earth, that the heat death of the universe won't just be the punctuation mark to a story that nobody else will ever hear. Um, that's a nice and comforting idea that we're maybe wired to believe in. It's not actually true, right? And um, that is, uh, I think, what Freddie's getting at. Um, it's explored in detail in a book that I really like just because I disagree with it so much by this uh, philosopher, Martin Hegland at Yale, who wrote a book, This Life, uh, where he basically says it's actually the idea of mortality, of our finitude that gives our lives meaning. Um, because otherwise, if we had infinite time, uh, whatever we did right now would be perfectly meaningless, right? Um, all through reading Martin Hegland's book on this, I just wanted to scream, have you ever read the book of Revelation? Because eternity is not just endless time to keep on doing the same thing and having the same argument and running out of new cocktails to make, right? Eternity is generative. It's new creation, new heavens, new earth, uh, new people with new possibilities um, that when we read the book of Revelation with its somewhat confusing but uh, sort of super abundant imagery of uh, what that new heaven and new earth looks like, a cubic city all made out of gemstones, somehow with a tree and a river in it, um, without a sun or a sea, uh, but with all kinds of people from somewhere else all coming to it, kings, right? Um, this imagery suggests that this new creation um, is one rather of buds bursting from buds bursting from buds than is some sort of eternal stasis where we just get sick of talking to everybody. Right. The phrase, obviously, that a lot of people have resonated with and which I can remember reading, my dad reading to me when I was probably eight, was further up and further in. Um, which is the which is how C.S. Lewis describes what what happens when the old Narnia has passed away and the new Narnia, you know, even this fantasy world, even this world to which you know, which kind of seems like a paradise itself and seems magical and and is reenchanted, even that has to pass away and there's a new heavens and the new earth in Narnia, and even there, there's not it's you are at rest but you're not in stasis you're still learning, you're still, there's some, there's still something more. And that's something more sense that, you know, we feel in our hearts, we need both rest and we need that more. And that's really what the incredible weirdness of Revelation and other apocalyptic literature, I think, gesture towards, um, you know, I, I, there's also, I think, a reason that people are so endlessly fascinated by trying to decode it. There's a, there's a sense in which, revelation, it's the idea of unveiling itself is both a thing that happens um, and also a thing, a project that we're constantly doing, trying to understand what this is. The Bible scholar Christopher Rowland um, famously noted that this book of unveiling is notoriously the most veiled book in the Bible. Um, it's invited centuries of decoders. And that's where I think we need to get into um, some Christian, specifically Christian misunderstandings of apocalypse. So right from the earliest centuries of the church, there have been people 
who, despite the clear warnings of the book of Revelation itself not, and, and of Jesus too, that that day would come like a thief in the night and no one will know the time or the hour, have, have attempted to determine the time of the hour and exactly when the thief would come. Um, and it's almost uh, unwittingly hilarious uh, history. According to you know, some, some historians, church historians have read, Augustine's City of God was actually uh, written to basically blunt the popularity of one particular theory that uh, that day would come in AD 500, right? And of course, the Roman Empire was falling. Things were falling apart. It looked pretty apocalyptic, maybe even more so than today. Um, and so that prophecy made a certain kind of sense. And uh, so this kind of landmark in Christian theology, uh, even though from an Anabaptist point of view, we have a couple of quibbles with it, uh, was in a way pointing Christians back to the fact that, no, um, believe what the good book says. We don't know when that time is coming. A lot of this was tied into um, this idea of the great Sabbath, right? That history, human history was a playing out of uh, 6,000 years, each millennium corresponding to one day of creation, followed by this Sabbath rest, right? And the book of Revelation does, of course, speak of this millennium, this thousand years, um, somewhat uh, in somewhat riddling ways. And so people were consumed with the idea that if we could only identify the date of creation, then we could figure out when the 6,000 years is up, and uh, then we'd know when the millennium is coming and Jesus will return, right? And uh, so this happened in 500 AD. It happened again. Um, uh, Augustine's hints led people to think it would come actually in 801 AD, which is one reason why Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Empire by the Pope in 801 AD. Um, this was in a way an inauguration of this millennium. Uh, then, of course, that kind of fell apart. Um, the year 1000 came, and that seemed like a good round number after Jesus' birth, that you'd think that now is time for another millennium. And that didn't work out, so, oh, well, let's go off of when Jesus died. So 1033 is going to be the new date that we think this thing is going to hit. Um, of course, uh, uh, there was, you know, Joachim of Fiore famously, you know, worked out a tr sort of Trinitarian version of this. Um, which was very influential in the Reformation times. Uh, and then Bishop Usher, right, who was a famous, uh, you know, that Anglican divine from the 17th century, I believe, who kind of worked out this whole uh, system of biblical history that some young creationists still held to, maybe still hold to, that the world was created in 4004 BC. It's a fascinating, fasting history. And Modern-day Christians can be, tend to be a little embarrassed and think, you know, this is just a fringe. This is just sort of a Christian underbelly. Um, I'm not quite so, so sure. I think this, this sort of recurrent idea that the millennium is coming and, oops, it actually didn't, has probably played a much bigger role in Christian history than, than, than we would possibly want to admit. It's a bit embarrassing. It's embarrassing, but it's also, I mean, I think there's an element of it. We're not, you know, we're not supposed to date set. We've been told not to date set. And yet we've been told to be ready. And we've been told to, you know, be the, you know, wise virgins who have the lamps ready and so on. And we've been told to sort of like, 
get hyped. Um, and it's very tough to be one of the wise virgins holding the lamp and not look at the clock sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think it's, it's something that we need to, um, you know, again, there's a kind of double vision that we need to have. We need to, um, you know, think, all right, well, maybe it's going to be another 10,000 years. Maybe we are in the early church. Maybe it's going to be another 100,000 years. Um, maybe, you know, there's a huge amount of like actual, you know, stuff that we need to do in order to respond to climate change because it's actually our responsibility to not screw up the planet, um, you know, you know, because we are going to have to keep living here. Maybe we should be going to the stars. We don't know. Um, what we do know is the kind of the, you know, the hope that we have doesn't change no matter how far out it is or how close it is. We know that our own deaths are the mini apocalypses that, you know, are going to come a lot sooner than probably um, a kind of final apocalypse. And we also know that the ethics that Christ calls us to, the way that we're supposed to live um, in a kind of everyday way, are, are not ever suspended by the expectation of apocalypse. If anything, you know, the whole vision of living as though today is the last day of the world or the, or the last day of your life should lead us to kind of intensify what we should be doing anyway. There's, there's, no, um, there's no out that we get of ordinary love. Um, in fact, ordinary love is kind of given its own proper weight by the realization that it's the most, it, it's the point of contact that we have with that eternity. I think you've, you've edged as close to the point, which is that Freddie DeBoer and his hopeless view of the future and the hopelessness of that entire materialist view of history is true, except for one thing, that the New Testament tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead and that this day of the Lord, this age to come, is already begun. And that is the only thing that we have to hang our hat on. Um, and that there, there is no hope in apocalypse. There is no promise of eschatology apart from that. There was something that I... Um... This is really dorky again, but a couple of years ago I was, it was Holy Saturday. So it was a Saturday in between, um, Good Friday when we remember Jesus's death and Easter Sunday when we, when we remember his resurrection. And I was listening to this new musical, um, called Hades Town. And I was thinking about the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice and of Hades and Persephone. And there's a kind of, um, one of the things that's often said about Judaism and Christianity is that in the face of kind of cyclical pagan ideas of um, history and kind of cyclical kinds of hope where there's all, always, there's enough hope to get you through the next year kind of because spring is gonna come again. Persephone is gonna come back from Hades. Um, but that's actually not the kind of hope that we need. We need the kind of hope that might've been, um, you know, if, if Orpheus had actually succeeded in rescuing Eurydice from the underworld, which he didn't, we need that kind of hope. We need the kind of hope that actually undoes death and creates a kind of um, permanent spring without stasis, a real final end to the kind of cyclical, maybe hope, but actually kind of return to hopelessness that has been the best that we could do um, in pagan 
myth and in human history until then. And that kind of perpetual, like fundamental revolution of life that really finally, you know, grabs Eurydice back from the underworld and doesn't let her go and doesn't fail. That's what Jesus offered. You know, it's interesting that that pagan kind of cyclical hope kind of works for people who live fulfilled, long lives, go through their natural life cycle. Now it's time to go, right? That, that, that is acceptable. It's sad, but it's okay, right? Where that, those ideas completely don't wash is when in the face of the death of a child, much less the death of the violent death of a child, for instance, in a school shooting. Um, there is no way that that pagan idea can offer any hope or, or provide any sense of meaning. Uh, you think of, you know, what's going on in Yemen right now, uh, the death of children to hunger. These are the things that the teaching, the promise of apocalypse sort of was invented not to answer, but to, uh, to point a way out of, I guess. And um, N.T. Wright, actually, in one of his books, I forget which, describes how the idea of resurrection um, became popular within Judaism. Because, of course, famously, it's kind of hard to find. It's not impossible, but it's hard to find a teaching of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Um, it's not everywhere. Um, and really, according to his argument, it emerged during the time of persecution when you had, um, under the Seleucid Empire, people dying for their faith. And there was no way to make sense of that because there was no justice in this life for the death of these righteous people. And it was the death of the righteous at the hands of the unrighteous that called for if we were to believe in a just, justice in the universe, called for, demanded a resurrection. And it was out of that, that sense, that hope that arose in, in Second Temple Judaism um, that Jesus then came uh, bringing with him his message that this is what is starting now. The new age, the age to come is with us and um, we can be part of it. So that is what I hope our uh, issue hope in apocalypse will ultimately point to. And uh, we're going to be exploring that in some of these future sessions, not always on the, you know, sometimes in a more playful way um, in our next episode, and sometimes uh, in a purely secular way in terms of looking uh, at future generations and uh, why is it that people aren't having more kids and what might convince them to have more. Um, so a whole wide range of topics we're going to look at. Uh, but that is just to let our listeners know sort of where we're coming from and ultimately um, why we think Apocalypse Doomsday is something we should hope for and look forward to. So Suzanne, I think that wraps up this. We do want to turn to uh, something that's happening right now which is where the hope of apocalypse is needed, and that is the war in Ukraine. Uh, we have an interview next with someone who's gonna tell us more about that.
We're very pleased to have on the podcast today Dr. Ivan Rusin, who is the president of the Evangelical Theological Seminary in Kiev in Ukraine, and the pastor of a church there. We did an interview with Dr. Rusin several months ago, and we wanted to check back in with him again. Welcome, Dr. Rusin. I guess um, my biggest question is what's been, you know, when I last spoke with you, um, I think you had just met up with your wife again for the first time since since she had gone um since she had gone to you know essentially out of the war zone um and you had just met back up with her for the first time in 40 days i think um what's what's happened since then and what's the current situation well um it was a great blessing for me that my wife she came back to kiev um our friends they gave us opportunity to stay at their apartment downtown kiev because our own apartment in bucha was looted and uh, there was no heating light so we had no chance to live in our own apartment so mm-hmm. it was a kind of healing experience for me to stay in a good apartment after I have spent more than a month in one of the offices in the Bible Society sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag. So uh, three days ago we were able to turn to came back to our own apartment in the city of Bucha. Still um, there are some uh, things that uh, remind us that Russian soldiers they were in our apartment, they looted our apartment and destroyed many things. Still, very often, electricity goes off. So just uh, 15 minutes before our interview, light switched off. Uh, So I I was not sure that if we make it or not. And just a few seconds before 10 p.m., light was on again. So we are trying to to, um, restore our previous life in the city of Bucha. And for us, it's a kind of like a prophetic stand against all reality we see around. So this is what is happening right now. Could you tell us, I mean, of course, uh, images of what happened in Bucha, you know, went around the world and were also uh, very influential, I think, in swinging world opinion uh, about the seriousness of what was happening with Russia's invasion in the Ukraine. What is it like in the in the town of Bucha now? Um, have you had conversations with people who were there during the occupation? Um, yesterday, yesterday, we were stuck in the elevator with my wife because uh, electricity went off. So complete darkness. We are locked in an elevator. And one neighbor was walking around, so we just cried, please help us to get out. So he, because there was no, uh, no connection, no internet in, inside of elevator. So, and when person came to rescue us, he's a technician. When he opened, I recognized in his face, one of the people that we helped just after Russian left, Russians left Bucha. So first phrase that he said to me, uh, I will try to translate into English, uh, goodness and generosity comes back. So, and he was, he was very happy 
to rescue me from elevator because I was I was providing him food and uh, gasoline when there was no gasoline and food in Bucha. So uh-huh. of course now I meet some people. Uh, we have been uh, helping. Uh, the next day after Russian went uh, away from Bucha and Bucha was retaken, and of course I I heard a lot of painful stories, but uh, now it seems that our government try to do as much as they can to fix everything. So there's. Mm-hmm. To make that no, but no, nothing will remind us about the war. But of course, there are many things that remind us. Every time I enter my apartment, I it reminds me. When I am driving my car, I see a lot of a lot of uh, buildings that are destroyed. When I am entering to my campus, the seminary I am leading, I see destruction which was caused by Russian uh, missiles. So many things uh, recalls us, and um, we we know that now the Ukrainian situation is not the, the first priority in uh, Western mass media. So we know it because we are informed about that. But war is real as as it was twenty years, uh, twenty days ago, and forty days ago. Every single day we hear this air alarm that is informing us that Russian missiles are getting uh, heading to Kiev. And just uh, one day ago, Kiev was targeted at an attack by five or six missiles. So this is our everyday reality. Uh, every day, according to our president, between 50 and 100 soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers, are killed. More than six millions of Ukrainians, including my extended family, are international refugees. Over 14 millions of Ukrainians, they have been forced to leave their homes. And for the almost two months, I, by, I was a refugee because my city was, Bucha was occupied. So for us, uh, this war is real as it was from the first day of the of the war. So, what is the situation with supplies? Um, are are you able to get? Are there groceries in the grocery stores? Are people, to what degree are people able to go to work? Like, is there what kind of normalcy is there? The situation is not normal. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting observations that I can make. In the beginning of the war, many people, they would say, no, 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 we are okay. Please give uh, food for other people. Mm-hmm. They, are, they had some savings. Mm-hmm. During the first days of the war, uh, it was hard to buy stuff because almost everything was closed down in Kiev. Now we have grocery stores that are open, but prices are extremely high. And people, they have no saving. So, uh, for example, the UETS, our seminar, is providing 1,000 hot meals per week. Mm-hmm. And frankly speaking, uh, I am surprised what kind of people are coming to our cafeteria to get food. You know, mm-hmm. when you see those people, you know, they are middle-aged, uh, they have good clothes. It's, it's clear that they had a pretty good life before the war, but now they are coming to our campus, to our cafeteria, 
which has no no uh, windows and instead of windows we have some like a plastic bags because windows are destroyed by the explosions and they are coming to have hot meal so as uh, our humanitarian crisis is uh, just starting and also in the beginning of the war our international friends uh, they were extremely generous sending us uh, provision uh, food uh, but uh, we see that every week we receive less and less provision from the for example Norwe- uh, Norway uh, Slovakia Poland because prices went up in their countries and now it's hard to buy a lot of uh, food to send uh, abroad. So uh, we are grateful to our international partners that have, um, I would say, proper and holistic theology. Those who experienced uh, war and they know that after 104th day of the war, the problem is still very uh, urgent. So they are sending uh, funds, they are sending provision, and we are capable to provide food. Uh, just a few days ago, I had a phone call from one of the, from the city of Hostomel, and um, there there is a person that we have been providing uh, support during all of these days, including some medical staff. So and he very kindly, in a very diplomatic way, he asked. You haven't visit us, visited us for uh, almost two weeks. And I said, well, um, do you still have a need in provision, in food? And he said, well, uh, we have our grocery stores open, but we have no jobs. Basically speaking, what he communicated to me, well, we do not have money to purchase food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I realize that even if the city of Hostomel is just a few miles away from Kiev, the need is still very urgent. We mm-hmm. made our focus in our mission to go uh, like in the smallest villages uh, far from Kiev and to the city like uh, cities like Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. Mm-hmm. So we deliver provisions there. But in the Kiev suburbs, uh, no, people, they have a challenge to, to have just basic needs, hygiene mm-hmm. and, and food. So, mm-hmm. of course, it's, a, it's, it's very embarrassed uh, for us to, to uh, recognize this need, but this is our reality. So, and he is mm-hmm. maybe, maybe 40, 42 years old. Uh, and uh, he didn't tell me uh, directly that we have no money, so because it would be hard for him to say, but... He communicated to me that, Ivan, we have just no money to purchase purchase food. So the need is huge. And every day when we send our teams uh, to deliver hot meals and uh, provision, we honestly and sincerely ask God to lead us in a way that we will find out those people that need the, the food the most. Because mm-hmm. there are hundreds of disabled and elderly people, they cannot, they cannot walk uh, fast. So we learned right from the beginning, when we enter the village, we stay almost 15 minutes 
near every house because mm-hmm. it will take some time for el- elderly people to get out. Mm-hmm. So they move slowly and, and, and then we stay long enough to make sure that there is nobody inside. So mm-hmm. the need is still very big. And of course, we recognize that many people around the world, they got tired from this war. Mm-hmm. It is 104 days. But the um, situation is very dramatic. Of course, in Kiev, we don't hear explosions as often as we used to hear during the mm-hmm. first months of the war. But still, there is a siren. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, the, the Russian rockets, they are uh, hitting uh, Kiev. So. Well, we will certainly drop the link to the fund that you set up. Um, you know, we, we linked that in the original article and we'll obviously link that in this podcast as well and tweet it around. Um, can you describe what's going on with the work of the seminary itself? Um, with you, you've been attempting to sort of restart classes or restart, um, I think, online classes. How's that going? We uh, resumed our teaching at the end of March, and it was a strong request from our students and from our faculty. And it was a healing experience Mm. for both. Mm. When I was able to return to our campus and when I was teaching using Zoom uh, from Mm. my from my office without windows, Mm. it was very moving. And Mm -hmm. uh, when I told to my students that, can you imagine I am teaching from my office? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of tears on their mm-hmm. eyes and on my eyes. So mm-hmm. uh, it is a strong uh, stand that we want to make. We will resume and we will continue our mission, our mission mm-hmm. in spite of the fact, you know, we are bombed, we are shelled and there is a war in Ukraine. So during mm-hmm. this 30, uh, 104 days of the war, we resumed our educational process. We are teaching uh, our full-time programs and part-time programs. We started two new programs in counseling, one in Central Asia and one in trauma healing in Ukraine. Very strong Mm -hmm. demand from uh, our people in Ukraine. And we, basically speaking, we had to close down registration because we wanted to have 20 students just to make a, you know, a good cohort. Because when you teach trauma healing, it's very important to have a smaller, smaller group of students and you build trust. Uh, and then when we got 35, 35 application, we decided to close down registration because it okay. became like a conference. Not a, like a yeah. like a study program. So we are operating. We are fulfilling uh, fulfilling our our obligation before our students. And of course, our campus was uh, we we got six missiles. And uh, I, as a president, I was very naive uh, when we informed mm-hmm. our uh, faculty. We had a Zoom, and some of our faculty are in Poland, Norway, Sweden, Canada, United States. Some of them are in Ukraine. And I told to my people, like, you know, we got six missiles. We lost uh, 80% of our windows. 
But no worry, it will cost us about $35,000 and we have friends from Australia, they will provide these funds. Well, a few days after, I realized that just for the one building, we need $100,000 to fix our windows. So, of course, we are facing great challenges, but the team is strong and we strongly believe in our mission. And we see how God was leading us to this point of, of time. Because six years ago, when we have been developing our vital sustainability plan, we developed a track which we call theology of citizenship. What is the role of the church in the society? So now we are more ready than ever before. And for us, it is extremely important that we are active. We are, we are uh, doing our mission in spite of the fact and we are doing holistic mission. And I heard uh, many promises from people I have never met before that they will visit our seminary after the war will be finished. And mm -hmm. some of our soldiers that are serving in our location, they shared uh, information with us that our community is uh, very uh, surprised with the role of the seminary. Because mm -hmm. the seminary was providing food and provision during all days of the, of, of the war. So uh, we are continuing our ministry. Of course, we are impacted by the war. Uh, we are wounded as an as institution. Uh, mm -hmm. We will probably lose some of our faculties because they will never come back. Mm -hmm. uh, however, our understanding of uh, the nature of holistic ministry, mm -hmm. uh, our understanding uh, of... Uh, public role of the church and publicity of the gospel as mm. broad as never before. So yeah. I strongly believe uh, that we will be stronger, we will be more authentic, and this will make us strong, not our, our strength, our resources, because we have no resources, but because we are authentic and, you know, we have the same scars our society has. So mm -hmm. when people from our neighborhood are traveling around the seminary, they see this campus was always shelled by Russian forces. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, as I am, as, as a Ukrainian citizen, as, as, a, as a minister of the church, my, my apartment was looted. I was a refugee. So, uh, you know, we can, we can speak with our, we can understand our people because we experience the same suffering they experienced. So mm -hmm. this is our reality right now. One of the things um, from your interview, and it's in our print issue, and then there's an extended version of the interview online, which I urge our listeners to check out, and we'll drop a link in the program notes. Um, in there, um, Ivan, you, you mentioned um, how certain barriers between different Christian churches in Ukraine kind of fell away. Um, which I just found fascinating. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Has that continued to be the case? Was that, um, you know, I, I imagine like in many countries um, that have traditional established churches, um, nonconformist churches haven't always been popular. Um, is that something you could, could tell us a little bit about? Uh, how, how, how is uh, 
the relationship between the different church, Christian confessions kind of working out in this time of, of stress? Well, Ukraine always was a kind of different, if you will compare religious freedom and collaboration between churches among post-Soviet Union countries. Uh. We always had freedom and uh, partnership. And this partnership is, uh, has been grown extremely during this 104 days of the war. So uh, I say and I see that this war made every Ukrainian my neighbor. The last question I ask, to which church do you belong? I do not care. If I see a need, I do not care to which church that person belongs, or even if they, he is a believer or not. I see the need, and I feel responsibility to, to help. So there is an extreme partnership and unity between churches. Uh, Orthodox churches, Catholic churches, Greek Catholic churches, and Protestant evangelical churches. For me personally, it was a great blessing to have lunch. It was the first uh, month of the war. Everything was unclear. Every day we heard explosions. And few times we had a lunch with the head bishop of Catholic, Roman Catholic Church in Kiev. One day when we visited him and we brought some provision to him, Bibles to, to his church, to his cathedral. And I remember he provided a full box of avocado. And for the next few <laughs> weeks we had a lot of avocado. So, uh, and uh, we visited uh, the office of uh, Bishop of Ukrainian Orthodox Church. We had meetings of Greek Catholic Church, and we shared resources with Baptists, Pentecostals, and, and, and others. And uh, it, was a great, it was a great unity. And uh, when, I was, when I saw that unity and partnership, it, it strengthened my hope that everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, when we um, try to interpret everything what is going on from only our denomination, it's one thing. But mm -hmm. when we hear confirmation from other denominations, it's another thing. And um, a few days after our visit of the Roman Catholic uh, bishop, he called to my friend, my co-pastor, and he's working for Ukrainian Bible Society, and he said, you know, brothers, uh, if you need rest somewhere in the downtown Kiev, we have a monastery there, because last time you visited me, I realized that you are very tired. So um, it, was, it was a great uh, testimony that somebody from a different tradition Notice that we are, we are, we are tired because uh, the Bible Society is almost in the edge of the Kiev and every night, every day, explosions, it was our everyday reality. So, and he, he just, he was concerned about that. So, and we have regular meetings between uh, different churches. And as you may know, in Ukraine, we have all Ukrainian Council of Churches and Religious Organizations, right. which includes, includes Muslims and Jews. And mm -hmm. we have meetings uh, almost every month. So, yes, this is interfaith uh, community, but we have these meetings, we have dialogue. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And uh, I am very, very happy to see that there is a a dialogue, there is a mutual respect between different uh, Christian churches and also between different religions. Yes, we have different theology, we have different belief, we belong to different traditions, but we all, we all of us are Ukrainians, and for us, it's a, it, you know, it's it's this is our our war, it's our fight. So, uh, in comparison with other countries, Ukraine um, indeed demonstrate uh, demonstrates very good dialogue, and this dialogue is uh, is is stronger and stronger every day. So uh, mm-hmm. we we have have been delivering food and other provision to different kind of churches, and also we received provision and support from different churches. For example, in the city of Hostomel, one guy he called us and he said that his uh, mother she's in handicapped and he has no chair. So we called to the Bishop of Adventist Church in Ukraine, and they provided a brand new uh, chair. And wow. we, we delivered it. That, uh, and those people in that hostomel city, they were surprised because this is the brand new. And they asked, how much does it cost? It cost nothing. Everything was paid before. So don't worry, just, just use it. So this is our reality. Early on in the war, there was a, I think you told me about um, a prayer service that included um, all the Christian denominations as well as Muslims and Jews in the, in the cathedral. Has that have you has that continued? Have there been more of those? Yes, there was several meetings like that, when uh, different church leaders, and also leaders of other religions, they gathered uh, together to pray. Mm-hmm. So and the first meeting uh, was very symbolic, because it was the sixth or seventh day of the war. There was information that the St. Sophia Cathedral might be attacked. So uh, it was also a prophetic stand of religious leaders to perform prayer in the St. Uh, Sophia Cathedral. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was very honest prayer. Mm-hmm. And uh, one bishop who was praying there. Mm-hmm. His prayer was the most loud prayer that cathedral has witnessed during 1000 years of history. Because that bishop, when he was praying, at that moment his son was arrested in south part of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And until now, we have no idea if he is alive or not. Gosh. Russians are saying that he is alive, but he is arrested. So they try to push that leader to sign some documents in order to see his son. But we hear a lot of voices that are saying that his son was killed in the beginning. Oh. Oh. So, uh, you know, I am a younger generation of uh, ministers. So when you see leaders, uh, bishops of Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant churches, and how they pray when Kiev is surrounded by Russian army, um, 
it was a great exa- example of courage mm-hmm. and hope. So, um, of course, you know, frankly speaking, I would be more happy to not to, ha- to have such events and not to have this war. But uh, to be part of that prayer, um, it was a great experience for me. And uh, when, the, when it is very hard and when our battery is low, uh, I recall that experience. Mm-hmm. So, and that experience gives me some strength. So, Are there, you know, when you think of your mission there now and your task as a church, as a, as a seminary, are, are there examples from, from history you look to, um, to, to inspire you um, about what it means to give witness as a Christian church during wartime? There are several uh, examples. I don't want to be a, a spiritual because every time we have to mention Jesus, of course. But the incarnation of Jesus is the supreme uh, model for me. So I would expect Jesus to cancel suffering. But he decided to suffer with the humanity. This is what makes me astonished and crazy. Jesus came to suffer by himself. So I developed the idea that Jesus, he must be nearby because he always show up where suffering is. So this is what, how I try to uh, nourish my, my soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus is also an example for me. He was in the midst of suffering. And um, I spent 104 days in Kiev. Just two days I was outside of Kiev area. This is two days when I was going with my friends to the Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. Uh, north part of uh, uh, Kiev, uh, actually east part of Kiev. So I saw a lot of uh, tears and suffering, and uh, I don't think that people are looking for answers. People are looking for presence, that somebody is present with them. Mm-hmm. So I think that I still don't, I'm not capable to comprehend how crucial presence is when we are present. So what can I tell to people that lost their loved ones, they lost their uh, apartments? I don't know why this happened, but I know what does it mean. I was in a, in, a, in a shelter for six days. Uh, my flat is uh, looted. My loud ones are refugees. My uh, campus is uh, bombed. I run funeral for my graduates. Mm. I led a funeral for my colleague, a 64 years old, a great guy. He was a great blessing for me. And because of war, because of, you know, this, he had to leave. His heart just, you know, stopped. So just one day before that cemetery was demined, and then with mm-hmm. his two sons and daughter-in-law, we had a funeral. 
So, and I, I can share that, you know, I don't know, I, I have no answers, but I know what does it mean. We have the same scars still. And I think when, uh, when we speak with people uh, about this, somehow they are capable to read on our faces that, you know, we speak out of our context. We, we, we really know what does it mean. So when I was visiting Bucha and delivering food to hundreds and hundreds of people, I, I was always saying, you know, I am from Bucha. My apartment is over, over there. So I am not just a foreigner that came uh, to them. So um, presence and solidarity. This is what we can, we can offer. Of course, we can, we can provide some, you know, we have education, you know, PhD in theology, but uh, people are not looking for answers in this moment. They are looking for presence, for support and compassion. We know that everybody started from this war. And we understand this as Ukrainians. And uh, of course, we know that um, why should... Why should the, the, the global world bother about Ukraine? You know, this is, this is absolutely our problem. But I am very uh, inspired by the Dr. Martin Luther King, Jerome, and uh, once he said that injustice somewhere is a threat for justice everywhere. So, um, there is something that, yes, we are responsible for the, for the world as a, as a, as a people of, of God. So as, as ordinary Ukrainians, the last thing we need is lessons how to forgive. Mm-hmm. How to how to how to live spiritually in this condition? This is the last thing that we need. Everything we are looking for at this moment, when we are fighting a giant, we are looking for some presence in the midst of us. Mm-hmm. We are looking for some for some um, solidarity. Mm-hmm. And you know, Ukrainian nation has a very corrupted history mm-hmm. under Soviet Union. And finally, we made the choice. We, we want to have a different future. We believed in this, you know, Western democratic, uh, you know, values and convictions. And we want to fight for this because we want to have a different future. We want to have a, you know, transparent, just country with freedom. So we, we ask, we cry to the, to the world, do not leave us alone. Mm-hmm. We know, we understand that you are tired from the war. Uh, we too. But um, this, is, this is probably the last chance for Ukraine to have different future. And uh, this war, this war is not about territory. It's not about war. It's not about land. Unfortunately, there is no space for the Ukrainian identity in the Russian world. Mm-hmm. 
So this is our prayer and our, uh, you know, our cry to the world. Do not leave us. Do not leave us alone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com, P-L-O-U-G-H.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. So go to plow.com to learn more. And join us next week when we'll be talking with extremely online, self-described mystical idiot and illustrator Owen Cyclops, known as at Owen Broadcast on Twitter, about his journey from general weirdness to Christian weirdness, and his cartoon on the American temper of apocalypticism. And with Eleanor Parker, known as at Clerk of Oxford on Twitter, about Archbishop Wolfstan and his attempt to build a polity out of recently pagan Vikings and Christian Anglo-Saxons in the 11th century AD. See you then.